what would it do indeed if we lived consistently by the ethic of considering others more important than ourselves? Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. We, we're not going to spend much time on verse 1 because we spent time kind of talking about that last week, but let's go ahead and read it in context um, together here. Um, boy, this is really interesting. Um, oh, there it is. Okay, I thought, where did I put the text in my notes? And I had hit embedded it somewhere. Now I found it. Okay, let's read it together. If then there's any encouragement in Christ, if any consolation of love, if any fellowship with the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, make my joy complete by thinking the same way and having the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should not should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. And I didn't put it in the notes, but it is good to remember that transition phrase that comes next in verse 5. Adopt the same attitude as that as Christ Jesus. So when we looked at that first verse, simply what we were acknowledging is that for, for, for the Christian to exercise spiritual discipline, this is not a self-help program to learn to discipline yourself to become something better than what you are. This is a gift of dignity, the image of God restored in you, the life of Christ dwelling in your soul. And so when we engage in discipline, it is simply for the purpose of increasing our awareness and cooperation with the Holy Spirit so that we can see worked out what has already been worked in. So it's an inward to outward transformation process, not an outward to inward conformity process. And so, so we talked about that last week. When you look at those phrases that are there in verse 1, make, Paul's making it clear. The only way that we can even hope to begin to dream about living in the kind of humility where we display that kind of radical honor toward one another is if we are fully secure in who we are and our identity that is hidden with God in Christ. And so, so we have to experience that inward revelation and transformation from which to draw the power in which we, um, we are willing to live a rhythm of life that produces the fruit of humility. So when we looked at that, just a few summations, what we see there in verse one is that following Christ is intended to bear the fruit of affection and mercy. This is where he lands. If there's any affection and mercy, is intended to bear the fruit of affection and mercy. Without the fruit of affection and mercy, which, 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 which empowers us to, to experience and to practice an empathy that goes beyond the limitations of our own personal experiences. And because of affection and mercy, we're able to create space to enter into the journey of someone else and practice empathy. But without the fruit of affection and mercy, we can't grow in humility. And without humility, we cannot grow in unity. And without unity, the culture of a community will not be characterized by joy. That's the theme here. Paul is explaining to the Philippians how they can make his joy complete, and he highlights that with the presence of humility. That's how the community can make his joy complete, because without humility 
a community will have a pseudo unity, but oftentimes that unity is based on the sharing of a common enemy, maybe an ideology or a people group or an idea that we've collectively demonized. And so that helps us feel a little bit more uh, connected with one another. But the truth is ultimately that will begin to disintegrate. Without humility, we will, put, we will only bolster our pride in our connections to our ideological commitments. And therefore it breeds divisiveness it breeds a, a debating spirit where someone has to be the winner and someone else has to be a loser. And, and because we are, we are woefully deficient in the basic skills of how to have a constructive communication face-to-face, -face, we tend to communicate our displeasure passively or we gather people around us that we know will agree with us and, and empathize with our posture of being against someone else. So we start kind of gathering around and we have these bonding conversations. Again, it's a pseudo unity that, and then this group over here is having a pseudo unity as well. And what we wanna do is that, and so, so the answer to that on an institutional level is just to require conformity to the same belief system. And it works, it, it is much, easier to grow a church if you have a very strict narrow belief system and you just simply say you can't be a member unless you sign on the dotted line of affirming this particular belief system but if we want to create space where we want to embrace the diversity that is in God's heart for the kingdom of God, then it means that the way we connect together is likely not going to be overshared ideology. My hope and prayer, our hope and prayer, is that we can commit, we can create a community based on our shared experience of the grace of Jesus Christ. And that can be the thing that unifies us and therefore I can sit across from someone who in one category is my ideological opponent and after that discussion over a Reuben, by the way, thank you Rachel for that, um, we can sit together in church and worship together as brothers and sisters because we are on the same journey of working out this powerful experience of the mercy and grace of God encountered in Christ, even though we may have points of doctrinal disagreement, and they may be very strong doctrinal disagreement. And yet, in my heart, I really believe that ideology can be defeated by humility but we have to respond to the inward working of the grace of God so that we can then use that as the standard for how we move forward in relationships with one another so that we all can participate in building a community that is characterized by joy. And that joy will be a powerful witness to the world around us who is des especially because it is desperately looking for those sanctuaries of joy right now. So as we tease out this ver the rest of the paragraph, verse two simply says, make my joy complete. So now we know that Paul is going to emphasize how this community of faith will contribute to his ongoing joy. Make my joy complete by, and then he's gonna layer once again four phrases. We're not gonna to look to them as much in detail as we did the previous four, but there's four phrases that are layered on top of one another. Um, um, make my joy complete by, number one, thinking the same way, two, having the same love, three, united in spirit, and four, intent on one purpose. Now, 
I, I actually don't think that what Paul's doing here is saying, follow these four points. I think he's using these four phrases to communicate one very simple, basic idea. Get along with one another. Get along with one another and you will make my joy complete. And, and as we ponder that idea, we'll recognize that's not just in the context of official gatherings within the institution, but it means we model this uh, rhythm of lifestyle in all of our conflicts that we engage in throughout the week, be they with members of the community or outside of this particular faith community. Or it also means that we cultivate this rhythm within the context of our own homes and let it start there and blossom there. And so we are experiencing the fruit of this and then we carry that on out externally to others. In other words, when he talks about thinking the same way, have the same love, be united in spirit, intent on one purpose, believe, I believe what he's simply saying is become one tribe from many tribes. And there are many tribes here. Underneath the surface, if we look at the micro tribes that gather at Christ Community Church, there is a Church of Christ micro tribe. There is a Baptist micro tribe. There is a Methodist Wesleyan micro tribe. There is a charismatic Pentecostal micro tribe. And there is a collected gathering of people who have been wounded by the church micro tribe. And there are as a collective gathering of people that want to be defensive and guard the old ways, micro tribe. There are many micro tribes. And then if you break that off into our various theological positions on any point of doctrine, there are micro tribes. But out of these micro tribes, is it possible that we could create one tribe under the vision of encouraging one another, supporting one another in our ongoing pursuit of responding to the grace of God and living a life of ongoing faithfulness to Jesus? I believe so. And I really don't care if your lifestyle choices are different than mine, if your sexual understandings are different than mine, if your doctrinal understandings are different than mine. All I'm asking is, can we lock hearts in supporting one another to live a lifestyle of increasingly faith, increasing faithfulness to Jesus. And then let God be in charge over our lifestyle choices and our points of doctrine. If we can say yes to that, I think that we can continue to build something here that's really special because there are many downsides to being an independent non-denominational church. And I won't bore you with all of them, but there are lots of them. And especially I have felt it more over 2020 and 2021. It, is, it, was a, it was radically isolating. And it would have been nice to be part of a denomination where I could have gone to regional gatherings and at least had some encouragement from other folks that are facing the same thing. But fortunately for me, even though I didn't have that, that was created by circles of folks within this community. But especially because of that, because we are not part of a singular denomination, it is critical that we work together through this common vision of increasing faithfulness to Jesus. And the truth is, I kind of like it. I love sitting around a table and hearing my Catholic brother or sister bring a perspective and hearing my Church of Christ brother or sister bring a perspective. 
I love this diversity. And if we can stop being defensive by attaching our identity to our ideologies and instead live a common identity in our, in our relationship to Jesus, then we can actually grow from one another's experience rather than be suspect of one another's experiences. And so, and so I think that it's really possible. That's what humility empowers us to do. So the calling is to see can we become one tribe from many tribes? And the reason why I say it this way, because the Israel would say, let's demonize all of our micro tribes and say it's wrong to be attached to those. I think that's foolish because your journey of the tribe you've been in, whether you like it or not, contributes to the person that you are today. And there is no, it is a hindrance for you to demonize your past. Now. Is there a season that you have to come to terms with the wounds of your tradition? Absolutely, you should do that. Will that be characterized by blaming and anger? Absolutely it will. Will it be characterized by cynicism and despair? You betcha, but guess what? On the other side of that, there is healing, there is reconciliation, there is a maturity and there is a humility to understand that we all come together in this place carrying the wounds of our past, but those things can be redeemed if we will allow ourselves to really participate into one another's journey in a, in a meaningful and relational way. Then maybe we become one tribe from many tribes. So what I'm suggesting to you, and again, because we are not a denomination that requires strict ideological adherence, you're allowed to openly disagree with the pastor. And as the meme showed, I would prefer you do that over a Reuben, but it's okay. Here's what I would like to challenge you to think about though, because I know what happens when we read this text and it says, think the same way, be united in spirit and intent on one purpose. We have been trained to go in the direction of ideological unity. You know, this is an interesting fact. Do you realize that the church not only existed, the church thrived in a period of years before there was any official creedal statement that determined orthodoxy and unorthodoxy. Up until that time, were there debates and disagreements? Sure, but at the end of it, that disagreement wasn't, wasn't shut off because someone pronounced, well, you don't align up to the creedal statement. The, the period of time that the church existed in that was longer than the United States has been a country. So longer than the United States have been a country, the church was able to thrive without a creedal statement that demanded fidelity. Why? Because at that time, the church wasn't known primarily by what it believed, by what it, but by what it did. The church was known by its presence in the world. That's, that's all right, you go ahead and clap about that. <laughs> yeah, and so, and so that staggering to remember, remember that next time when you're worried about your friend who's not quite, doesn't have their theological or doctrinal ducks in a row, remember for a time longer than the United States has been a country, the church was able to flourish because of the work of the Spirit. And we can talk more about what happened once creedal statements entered some other time. 
Um, I would love to talk about that, but tonight's morning is not the way. So I don't think it's unity in, in what you think. In fact, I said another way, think the same way is unity in how you think as opposed to unity in what you think. So it's a unity in how we're gonna hold our ideas, not necessarily a unity of agreement with all points of doctrine and ideas. And so I looked in the dictionary in Merriam-Webster and fundamentalism is defined this way. Fundamentalism, a movement or attitude stressing strict and literal adherence to a set of basic principles. A movement or attitude stressing strict literal adherence to a set of basic principles. Now, I hope you understand what I'm critiquing this morning is fundamentalism, not fundamentals. I believe in fundamentals. I think that in every every pursuit, every discipline, I think probably we all understand that there are face, there are fundamentals to everything from practicing law to doing communications to working in church to getting becoming a better basketball player to becoming a master at jujitsu. There are fundamentals that you have to learn. The fundamentals in and of themselves aren't what's wrong. It's the attitude that we take with fundamentals. Fundamentalism is an attitude that I think is demonic and dangerous. And it is not, <clears throat> there's a mistake oftentimes that is thought that conservatives only recommend fun, re, represent fundamentalism. It's not true. There are lots of progressive fundamentalists. And in fact, I would say the tide is turning. We're seeing more progressive fundamentalism than conservative fundamentalism right now because it's this attitude that unless you agree with the thought pattern and the belief system, then you're out. Now, have I seen conservatives do that all my life? Absolutely. I'm just saying progressives do the same thing. But it's not even just that. It's really the people that prefer roasting their own coffee beans and grinding them can become a fundamentalist movement and look down on all of us who still enjoy freeze-dried drip coffee like Folgers or whatever. So, so we, we tend to bring this into anything that we do and we have to be very, very mindful and cautious of it. Fundamentalism is holding your beliefs without humility. It, it is holding your beliefs as though you have the same ab the capacity for absolute knowledge that God has. That's fundamentalism. And to be free of it, you simply say, I'm convinced I might even die for this belief. However, I recognize as a finite creature with a limited brain capacity, I could be wrong. And even if I'm not wrong on every point of it, the way I'm nuancing some of it likely is wrong. And if you look at your own past and your journey of your belief system, I think most of you probably are gonna see that one of the ideological opponents that you could face is yourself 10 years earlier. You likely felt and thought differently about things. In fact, I would say if our beliefs haven't changed over 10 years, that would be a cause for concern because it's indicative that I might not have done the proper soul work to be open to the ongoing education that the Holy Spirit wants to bring me. And so we just increase in understanding. Once we begin to define faithfulness to God as faithfulness to our beliefs about God, we have taken the first step toward idolatry that will cause us to wander in the wilderness. We have to be very discerning and to make sure that our passion is a passion for the mission of God, not the maintenance and defense of a belief system. 
and, and we can shift from one to the other without even realizing that's what we've done. But the call is faithful to the mission of God, not to the preservation of a belief system. For the Christian, faithfulness to God is measured by our faithfulness in living the way of Jesus. And this pursuit becomes the unity of thinking and um, uh, purpose, thank you. We have a shared purpose of being here to support one another's journey on increasing faithfulness to Jesus. That is where we find commonality with our thoughts. We are on a mission to encourage that faithfulness. We wanna support one another in the transformation that happens as we learn to cease living antichrist and yield to living in Christ. That is our posture, that's our goal. For the community of CCC, we understand faithfulness to, to Jesus as pursuing a lifestyle that empowers us simply to trust him as savior, know him as friend, and to obey him as Lord. That is what we mean when we say a life of, of increasing faithfulness to Jesus, growing in, trusting him as savior, knowing him as friend, and obeying him as Lord. Then in verse three, he just gives two basic principles that then becomes the way we practice this call to humility. So what is the how of humility? Well, Paul is gonna tell us the how of humility in verses three and four. And what he'll do in both verses is it's first stated in the negative and then it's stated in the positive. And so you can see that in the text. So I'm gonna primarily emphasize the positive articulation of those statements. But he says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility consider others as more important than yourselves. Everyone should look not to his own interests, but rather to the interests of others. Now notice, that unity of thinking and purpose is not rooted in conformity to ideology or belief, but rather in a common understanding of how we are called to treat one another, which is really profound because Jesus himself said, the way you bear witness to me is not on agreeing on all matters of doctrine and church polity. The way you bear witness to me, it will be seen by your love for one another. That's what he said in the last moments that he was spending with his disciples. And how exactly is it that we're called to treat one another? Very simple, almost uncomfortably simple to be honest. In fact, when you read it, you're gonna immediately start thinking of the ways you can draw boundaries around it. Consider others as more important than yourselves and look to the interests of others. It's as simple as that. Consider others is more important than yourselves and look out for look to the interest of others now think about that look at the measuring point in both of those statements paul begins with an assessment of how you relate to yourself how do you esteem yourself what do you think of yourself and whenever you're thinking about your own interests, what do you look to? Now, take that priority, remove it from yourself and place it on others. That's what he says. So consider others more important than yourselves and look to the interests of others. But this is really important because this is why the gospel has to create an internal transformation. 
because I believe that oftentimes we get stuck in having, in really not having faith in the gospel. Most of us struggle with believing that it's as good as it's presented to be in the New Testament. And therefore, we tend to have an evaluation of ourselves that is informed by our failure, our wounds, and our insecurity, rather than informed by a growing understanding of the nature of the gospel and what it means that we have been dignified with the identity of Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, there's a problem here, because if that's the attitude you carry about yourself, guess what? It's very difficult to allow yourself to give someone consistently honor others in an elevated way than what you honor yourself. That becomes the standard point. It's like when Jesus said, love your neighbor as you love your... So there are two loves in that commandment. You got to learn to love yourself in order to actually practice loving your neighbor. And I know that there have been lots of fear-mongering about preaching against the self-centered danger of the self-esteem movement. I don't really want to speak to that directly, but I will say this. It's foolish to not emphasize the cultivation of gospel esteem. So if, if the word self-esteem harms you, then think of it as gospel esteem. Because the truth is, consistently relating to ourselves less than the dignity of the image of God bearers that we are causes us to live a life of practical unbelief in the gospel. Because that's the miracle is that undeserving though we are, we've been given a gift called faith and grace and Jesus has chosen to hold us together in himself and he has now become the dwelling place. And, and we have now become the dwelling place of Christ and we have to understand ourselves from that place in order to see one another that way. Your treatment of others will never rise above your thoughts about yourself. The more noble your understanding of yourself in light of the gospel, I'll emphasize, then the more noble your treatment of others. But if you think you're worthless, you assume everyone else is too. When you start to understand that you are dignified beyond your imagination, not because of anything you had to earn, but because of the gift of the grace of God in your life, then you can look out and see the dignity of the other image bearers around you. That's why it has to begin internally so it affects the way we understand others. And so when we talk about the cultivation of humility and what makes it difficult for us to live in the liberation of humility? And I was thinking through that quite a bit. So as we think through that, it's important that you understand that you're not a proud and insecure person striving to be humble. You are a humble person who is learning to overcome pride and insecurity because your starting point always has to be in the life of Jesus within because he is your life. Therefore, what is true about Christ is true about you. Is Jesus an arrogant person trying to act humble? No, he isn't. He is the incarnation of humility, which means the incarnation of humility already resides within your heart and soul. You don't have to go out looking for it. You just have to learn how to, to cultivate a rhythm of life that empowers you to pay attention intuitively to that humility that already lives within your soul and let it get out. And so that's why we're not overwhelmed by this prospect. 
And I'll, I'll be honest with you. So I, I just wanted, before we close, to take just a minute or two to tell you how this text has worked on me. Because I've lived in this text this week, but it, it's such a powerful verse and I've returned to it many times. So I've lived in it in a lot, a, 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 a lot of my days and prayer and devotion and reading scripture because I'm fascinated by this idea. What could it really look like if we did this? If like a whole group of people lived to out honor one another uh, toward the other. And I will say that um, I, I have struggled with humility. And, and the reason why it's important to acknowledge that is that on a simplistic way, we might be tempted to think we struggle with humility because we're arrogant or proud. Now, I think that that's a possibility. But the more I thought about it, I realized my lack of humility is, moan, is also rooted in my own insecurity and my, and, and my tendency to become defensive when I think that I'm attacked. And so, yes, I am not saying I don't have pride and arrogance, but I'm saying that that often is not, my pride often doesn't manifest itself as arrogance. It hides very subtly and manifests itself as insecurity and defensiveness. And so, and so, I have had to repent. I will confess to my brothers and sisters, but I know your stories, and so I know I'm not alone. But at some point, it's important to acknowledge collectively, look, 2020 and 2021 did damage to my soul. And, and I'm not blaming the stress of it per se, but I will say the way I responded to the stress of 2020 and 2021 did damage to my soul. And in that soul damage, I fell for the lie that I've got to defend myself because, or no one else is going to. And so it cultivated a defensiveness in me. And so I even would say, I don't have the self-awareness to know how all that manifested in my soul and my life, but I have enough it's not really humility or self-awareness. It's just common sense to say, I apologize if that gets communicated in any time the past two years when I've stood up to, to do my best to honor the word of God. Sometimes taking yourself out of the way is not as easy as it can. And so if that comes across as defensive or harsh, that might be an accurate accusation toward me. And therefore I repent and I apologize because it did do damage to my soul which then made my pride seem more justified than if it would have just been arrogance. And so these are two ideas that I have returned to time and time again. I was first introduced to them about 15 years ago. My initial reaction was to be offended by them, to have vehement, vehement disagreements toward these ideas. But once I began to trust their wisdom and try to live it out, I experienced the beauty of the fruit that was born because of it. So again, I'm bearing witness to my story. I'm not telling you what you have to do. If it edifies you, wonderful. If it doesn't, then investigate your own story about what are the things you've learned that have empowered you to more consistently walk in humility. For me, it was two ideas. Number one is this. If I'm offended, I need to be. Now, by that, I don't mean offense like uh, being offended in the, in the face of human trafficking. And that's what I'm, I'm talking about, personal offense. It was a hard principle to live by, 
And I've learned you can't force it on anyone else because if you do, they're just going to think you're making excuses for your being offensive. But for yourself, if I'm offended, I need to be. And here's why. My personal offense, what it does is it reveals that I am defending something that's not mine to defend. It it is an exposure of my inability to trust in the goodness of God in certain aspects of my life and feel like I've got to to circle the wagons in self-protection. And, well, that was a weird analogy for a native to use, but nonetheless, there you go. Uh, in, in a posture of, of, of uh, self-protection that ends up becoming a dependence not on God and not a healthy interdependence on everyone else, but a, 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 a dependence upon myself alone, which breeds this attitude of pride that makes it very difficult for me to walk in humility. What I have learned is this. My reactions to offense reveal more about me than they reveal about my offender. It's a revelation of my own insecurity. And so now I recognize my offenders do me a favor because sometimes I don't have a reaction. Back when I had a majestic mane, and it was great. Sometimes I still have dreams where I'm brushing my locks of hair. And for some reason in the dream, there's always a flan, fan blowing somewhere that I can't see. But it's really inspirational. I wish you could all share in it. But I was always plagued by this ridiculous cowlick right back here. And it was the bane of my existence, especially in junior high, because junior highs are not very kind for people with cowlicks that stick up in the back. So if someone made jokes about my cowlick or my hair, guess what? I got really offended. I had an emotional response. Why? Because in my insecurity, I didn't want people laughing at me. I didn't want people making jokes about my hair. I wanted to try to, you know, I was, you know, one of the earliest movies, I probably shouldn't confess to this, please don't hold my parents accountable, but one of the earliest movies I remember being influenced by was Grease. Now, I didn't understand any of the lyrics back then, mind you. But, you know, that wonderful mane that John Travolta had uh, was an inspiration for me. So I would react defensively. And then if you make fun of my cowlick, I'm going to make fun of your nose. You know, you know, the dance that we play. Guess what? If someone makes fun of me having a bad hair day today, it doesn't bother me at all. <laughs> In fact, for those of you who don't know, I resisted it, but this is quite liberating. And so, now why is that? It's because if you make a joke about me having bad hair, I don't believe it because I know it isn't true. But back when I believed it was true, I had a reaction. Now that one was simple, but what happens when they talk about your judgmental attitude or your tone? Or if you consistently hear people say, you don't really listen very well. Well, That either reveals a deficiency in my character or it reveals that I am living a defensive posture so I can't handle anything critical coming my way. That, my friends, is evidence of pride residing in my heart. And so one of the ways we're released from that is to embrace this idea, if I'm offended, then I probably need to be. And the second one was simply this. If I judge, 
I will judge wrong. Now, it might be 100% wrong. It might be 5% wrong. The problem is I consistently always act on the percentage that I get wrong. That's the way I move forward in relationship. And judgment requires the capacity to know all things about all people. And God alone possesses that attribute. We do not. This is why we don't judge is because we, for one of the reasons, we simply lack the capacity to be able to be aware of all the variables that would allow us to have an accurate judgment. Luckily, we have the Holy Spirit who searches the mind and heart of God and the mind and heart of us, and he does have access to that. That's why it's only the Holy Spirit that can effectively convict people. We, we never can because we don't possess that ability. So if I judge, I will judge wrong. My judgments, like my offenses, become a useful tool for revealing more about me than the one I am judging. Now, with those ideas in mind and with the desire to cultivate some humility, would the worship team please come forward as we get ready to close? Um, you see in your notes the call to action. Identify an offense, identify someone or some group that you judge, and consider a more Jesus-centered approach. Now, I want to land on the third one right now. Consider a more Jesus-centered approach. Take time this week to practice these three ideas. And in considering a more Jesus-centered approach, take a moment to allow the physical sensations of anger to alert you that it's time to breathe, keep silent, and pray. That is not the time to speak. That is not the time to critique. That is not the time to declare your righteous indignation. And I say the physical sensations because I see a lot of people say, well, I'm not angry. Really? You're sweating. There's like, a, there's like a vein in the side of your face, I see, and like you're turning red from the chest upwards, and you're looking at me like you're a gypsy placing a curse on me. Now, I get it that you may not feel angry in your heart, but all the physical manifestations are saying, you're pretty ticked off right now. So it's a way that I learned to be accessible. Instead of denying my anger, I know when my heart rate gets elevated. I know when I start to get nervous and my breathing gets more shallow. I know when I feel that heat crawling slowly up. And so when those sensations come upon me, it's time to shut my lips. It's time to learn how to listen in the context of offense. So allow those physical sensations to alert you to breathe, to keep silent and to pray, and then ask questions and listen to the answers. Don't ask questions with the purpose of formulating a retort. Just listen. And you'll know you've done this when they finish talking and you don't know what to say back. Then you've listened well because you weren't formulating a defense. You were actually entering into the story of the other. Listen, ask questions, and then share with them your understanding and ask them if they feel that you understand them. And then finally, my friends, you're gonna make assumptions. Why not practice making generous assumptions? We, we don't make generous assumptions. We make narrow assumptions. Practice the habit of making generous assumptions. When I'm offended, I have a journal and I write a story in which I imagine the person that has offended me 
in the most generous light as possible. I just recreate the narrative because the narrative I have in my head, I don't have any authority of knowing if it's true either. So why not indulge a fantasy where I have a generous assumption about people? Now, it doesn't mean it's true, but it means that it allows my heart to step back and have a little grace. So this week, walk through this call to action, and we're going to do that for just a millisecond here. Stand up. And I simply, as we pray and as we worship or as you take communion, I want you to allow the Holy Spirit to bring an offense that you're carrying back to your heart and mind. And in that space, simply ask the Spirit this question. What is this offense revealing about me or a false belief that I'm embracing? And then let the Spirit do soul surgery.